And now, The Low Post. Welcome to a Blizzard edition of The Low Post podcast, where it's time to talk about some scuffling or just flat out weird, confusing teams. And we have to start with the story of the day, the 8 and 13 Dallas Mavericks who just got swept in a two-game baseball series by the Phoenix Suns. Chris Paul just Chris Pauling and point godding all over the place, all over the Dallas Mavericks grave. They are 13th in the West ahead of only the New Orleans Pelicans and the Minnesota Timberwolves, who are very, very bad. Um, And they've lost six in a row. Luca has made some alarming comments to the press to help us understand what in the world is going on with the Dallas Mavericks, who, by the way, Oh, a sweet, unprotected first-round pick to the New York Knickerbockers. The feisty New York Knickerbockers who have a better record than the Dallas Mavericks right now. The one and only Tim McMahon. How are you? Howdy. How are you, Zach? I am good. I'm good. we got a foot of snow sledding. We had a, a mother and daughter in our yard yesterday who slid into a tree, almost a fright. Almost, I almost had a liability issue on my hand. It was, it's, it's a great time. I don't know what the temperature is here, but it's it's got to be like sixty something. I mean, it's a beautiful February day for everybody, but uh, everywhere but the Mavericks practice facility, apparently. Well, yep, they had another uh, close loss last night, and spoiler alert: the Mavericks have a bad record in close games again this season. Although I don't really think there's maybe there's something to it, maybe there's not. I mean, Dorian Finney-Smith had a great look at a corner three yeah. that would have basically won the game last night. Um, let's review the uh, the metrics. They're eight and thirteen. They are 21st in offense, which is flat out shocking uh, And after having the best offense in the history of the league last year and 18th in defense. Now, obviously, the caveat is last night, I believe, Mr. McMahon, was the first game all year they yeah. had their what they, I think, view as their starting lineup. Is their start, that that right. lineup had not played at all. Uh, Richardson, Doncic, Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba, Porzingis, um, their team has been absolutely gutted by health and safety protocols and the virus itself. It's hard to know what to make of it, but everyone's back now. And it was very clear last night that they came out with a sense of urgency to try to win that game. They played really hard on defense. Josh Richardson opened the game with a couple of hard driving layups. KP got a put or Kleba got a put back dunk and they didn't win the game. So what's the level of concern within the Mavericks? Are they still in the, well, the virus destroyed us for a while state of mind, or are they now morphing into the, okay, time to win, and this is a little strange that we're not able to do it, frame of mind. Yeah, I, I think it's it's more toward the latter. And look, the, there is context here, and there is reason to be cautious as far as overreacting. You know, Porzingis missed the first, I believe, nine games coming off the knee surgery. Um, then again, Porzingis coming off of knee surgery is in and of itself a significant concern. But And then as soon as he gets back, like you mentioned, they are absolutely gutted by COVID. Uh, you know, at, at one point they had five rotation players, three starters uh, who were out. They finally got three, uh, three of the guys back. They, Brunson was the first back, and then they got three of them back in Utah and just got their asses handed to them twice by the Jazz without Donovan Mitchell. Um, not exactly. Hey, coming off of this, uh, you know, pandemic illness, um, you were quarantined in for a couple of these guys' cases, quarantined in a hotel room for two weeks in Denver. I think they were, you know, legitimately pretty sick. And here's the red hot Utah Jazz in the altitude of Salt Lake City. That did not go well for those guys. Then last night, get Maxi Kleba back. Uh, it was a tough one for Maxi. 
Uh, really tough one for Maxi. Right down to the final seconds when the emphasis in the timeout before uh, that last play was the one with hey, 1.5 seconds left. To Luca yeah, misses the, the three at the buzzer. No, 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 no. Uh, 10 seconds. Sun's down to Darren oh, downing the ball. Devin Booker's dagger. Yes, fouled the old J.J. Redick play with the Clippers. Now it's Devin Booker with the Suns. Perfectly executed. Uh, great shooter making a great shot. Uh, Chris Paul delivering the pass on time. Whatever. Great execution by the Suns. Mavs had a foul to give. That was the emphasis in, in the timeout. Maxie's all over Chris Paul after the switch. <laughs> plenty of time, plenty of opportunity to foul. Didn't get there. So, you know, look, is it is it progress that they've gone from Luca blasting the the whole team for just flat out not giving a damn, saying I, it honestly doesn't look like we care whether we win or lose, you know, saying this team's not playing hard, there's no effort, to you know a, a, a few days later, now they're they're losing in large part because of a a, a massive mental error. Unfortunately for the Mavericks, things are so rough right now that yeah, that that's actually progress. Let's talk about the offense because, I mean, this team was a bad defensive team last year. They made a couple of changes, including a Seth Curry, Josh Richardson mm-hmm. trade. That they, they project as an okay to good defensive team. They're about average right now. That's not alarming to me. That's That'll be fun. The offense being 21st, even with all the injuries, yeah. is alarming. We can talk about why that is. There are some obvious reasons. Number one, they're the worst three-point shooting team in the league. There will be an uptick in three-point shooting, again, despite the fact that they baked a little bit of a regression Mm -hmm. into their team. And if you watched on one of the crunch time plays, like like a minute and a half left, Luca had DeAndre Ayton on a switch at the top of the arc, and he couldn't do anything with it. Why couldn't he do anything with it? Because Mikhail Bridges was guarding Josh Richardson and was like, well, I don't care if this dude shoots. Right. Uh, My arms are 14 feet long. And I'm just going to sit in the middle of the floor and wall off the paint. And if you pass to Josh Richardson, who's shooting, I think, 28% or something from three, whatever it was, go ahead and do it. So that will change. They are um, 25th in getting to the rim and in percentage of their shots that come to the rim. So they're not getting to the basket as much and they're taking more mid-range shots. And Porzingis is shooting 30% from three and they are getting destroyed when Luca is on the bench, their their offense with Luca on the floor, 113 points per 100 possessions, which is good. Not not what you want it to be. Below what they were last right. season. When Porzingis plays without Luca, 99, which is worse than the worst offense <laughs> in the league. And those minutes had become after a slow start. The Porzingis only minutes had become very very strong for them last year. They were plus 10 per 100 possessions when KP played without Luca. You can chalk that up to like KP's finding his groove. It'll take some time. Right. But something is just off with the Mavericks when they have the ball. And I'm interested to hear, Tim, watching up close, what you are seeing. Yeah, and and, and obviously the, the three-point shooting is a huge problem. And again, how, how much can we really trust what we've seen given all the circumstances? Those are legitimate questions. But – uh, you know, with, with Porzingis, I, I think that Porzingis is going to be closer to the guy that we saw for, you know, about a quarter of the season um, at, at, the, at the end of last season than he is right now. But, man, look, Kristaps Porzingis is the biggest question, one of the biggest question marks in the NBA. And obviously, number question mark number one there 
is availability, but also, you know, if, if you talk to, and I'm sure you've done this, talk to scouts, talk to executives, I hear more doubt than, than belief in his ability to, to be a bona fide co-superstar that you need to be able to contend for championships. But, you know, to hell for contending for championships. Let's worry about the Mavericks contending for a playoff spot right now. They've missed Seth Curry much, much more than I anticipated. You know, I, I was also of the belief that uh, if you have Luka, you will have an elite offense. And so subbing Seth Curry's elite shooting for, you know, a, a defensive stopper slasher type in Josh Richardson, I, I thought that move made sense at the time. So far, it hasn't panned out. Um, you know, obviously Richardson missing a lot of time because of COVID is part of that. I, he did have it was it was too bad for him because he had by far his best performance in a Mavericks uniform last night, and it ended with uh, Devin Booker splashing a three in his face. Um, Dorian Finney-Smith, another guy who who missed a bunch of time for COVID, he's shooting thirty two percent from three though. That's about what he shoots for his career. One of the biggest developments for the Mavericks last year was that he shot in the high thirties, and it, it, it was something where they really were. were excited about that, you know, excited about his development, you know, the work that he'd put in paying off. But if that season is kind of a, a fluke shooting season and this we'll is see, right. We'll yeah. see. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, hopefully he turns hope. Maybe this is a little bit of a downturn that will correct itself. Or if last season does prove fluke season, they have a different sort of player on their hands than they believe that they had. Right. Because he is, he is, and look, he's not a guy who a lot of people, if, if you don't watch the Mavericks on a regular basis, know, but he's a huge part of this. He's, he's their Trevor Ariza type of guy. He's a six foot eight, really versatile defender. Uh, he guarded Chris Paul last night. Not that he did real well, but it just kind of shows you how much they rely on him uh, defensively. And the difference between him shooting 38% and him shooting 32% from three, I mean, you know, that, that, that impacts a lot to do with space. And, you know, last night, uh, 24 seconds left, Luca Luca's able to get in the teeth of the defense, kicks it out to Finney Smith, wide open corner three. It didn't go in. He makes that shot. And, you know, you, you don't have me on the low post today. Maybe, uh, maybe not. I don't, I was going to have talk about the Mavs anyway, but yeah, it was a good shot. And that's the proper play by Luca. Yeah. Um, it's a proper play. He's a good, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I would guess Dorian Finney-Smith shot 40% plus from the corners last year. Um, if and, was- and look, Luca has to shoot better than 29%. And some of that, I think a lot of times is shot selection. Um, you know, some of that is he came in in the season out of shape. He had heavy legs early in the season and, 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 and was short on a lot of stuff. Um, but if we're, you know, if we're talking about the Mavs offensive issues, that's one of them. Um, but I don't want to harp too much on the guy who's averaging 27 points and nine and a half assists. No, it's, it's one of those things where the stats are like, whoa, it's like LeBron a couple of seasons ago. Everyone said, oh, LeBron looks a little slow, a little dis- yeah. like disengaged. Not even then he was like, well, he's averaging 28, nine and nine. I mean, can you just wake <laughs> up and roll out of bed and average 28, uh, nine and nine. Um, but so last night that you mentioned Finney Smith on Chris Paul, Josh Richardson on Devin Booker. That's the idea. The yeah. idea of the team is Porzingis at center, a load of spacing, two wings who can guard the two best wings on the other team. So we don't have the problem we had when we ran into PG and Kawhi when we only had one answer for those guys. Like that's the idea of the team. And in fairness to the Mavs, we just haven't really seen that team for any sustained period of time. I do believe if they stay healthy, 
and they get their conditioning and the guys, but the other thing we don't right. know is, you know, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, a couple of guys got sick, like legit yeah. sick. Right. And I, I've talked to players and agents and people who have gotten sick. And I, at some point, these guys will tell their stories in a little bit more detail about how they felt and how they're feeling and how long it's going to take them to get back. Because that's one of the unanswerable questions. We don't really know how long it takes. And like some of these guys are going to recover differently. I do think the Mavs are going to rebound and have a good team. But I will say when, I, when I've watched their offense, we can all the numbers the more we can throw all the stats out there you just watch them and there's just a lack of pop it's so yeah. slow there's no dynamism at all there's like very little of the sort of pop 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 creativity when they were rolling last year luca was luca and kp and luca and even like pre pre kp they would have all these give and goes and like these improvisational reads where everybody would be making reads on the fly and give and go plays. There's none of that. Watch Luca when he gives up the ball. He does nothing. He just stands. He's like James Harden off the ball. Well, and, 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 and look, Luca, Luca's body language during games, during timeouts, it, it's an issue. Okay. Luca spends a lot of energy bitching at referees. He's, he's one been, of the this is in my 10 things notes is a possible 10 mm -hmm. things. He's become one of the biggest whiners in the league. Just it's constant. Every time he yeah. drives, he's whining. Yeah, and and a lot of times he has a case and a lot of times it's it's wasted energy and it's you know just I think sucks the life out of a team. Um and you know Lucas spends a lot of time slumping his shoulders uh at, at teammates and I think that and this is getting way out of like you know, the, the X's and O's and the numbers and the, you know, why, but I think the Mavericks did Luca a major disservice by declaring that he was the leader of this team. And he's a great leader. And you know, Rick, a lot of times will emphasize things in the media, either. I, I don't know if it's as a way of trying to kind of push guys towards that or if he's trying to pull the old LeVar ball, speak things into existence. But all this talk that how oh, Luca's a great leader, he's made huge strides. He's 21 years old. You know, he's a guy who, when it's fun with Luca, it is great fun. He's smiling. Everybody's smiling. He's one of the most fun players to watch when things are going well. When it's not fun with Luca, shoulders are slumping, scowls, you know, bad body language. And he's never had to be a, he's one of the best players in the world. He's never had to be a leader. He played with EuroLeague legends with Real Madrid. Goran Dragic obviously was the leader of the Slovenian national team. And, you know, for the first couple of years of, of Luka's career, he had J.J. Barea. Whether Barea was playing a lot or not, he had J.J. Barea in the locker room. You know, a, a, a guy who'd won a championship, a guy who uh, – a fiery, feisty type of personality. He had Barea on the bench. And – they chose to to let Berea go. Um, you know they've they've gotten, I think, what two and a half points per game out of Wes Wundu. <laughs> I, I I'm never going to stop being a Wes Wundu fan. I won't tolerate a Wes Wundu slant slander on this podcast, Tim. Okay, I won't do it. My my point is this: I think they did a they really did Luca a disservice by forcing him, forcing this leadership thing onto him instead of letting it develop naturally and taking away his Yoda. Well, 
maybe Wes Wandu should just anoint himself the leader of the Mavericks. Maybe that's maybe a Wes Wandu Boban leadership council could solve all well, their problems. And look, they've got like, hey, James Johnson's trying, but James Johnson's a guy who's just passing through, you know? I mean, he's a upbeat personality and this and that. He's a guy just passing through. You know, Dwight Powell is kind of a, a role model in terms of work ethic, this, that, and the other. Dwight Powell's a DNPCD last night, like, you know, and he's never won a playoff series. And he's not he's a he's a great worker, but he's kind of a Boy Scout personality. He'll work his way back in the rotation. You know that. He they'll have him rim running yeah. him for lobs. He'll take Collie Stein's minutes in a and couple look, of games he, or something. That'll you know, come. Well, and, and I mean he, he talk about a tough situation. A guy's coming off an Achilles and then gets coronavirus. And and look, if we're gonna get back to like actual issues with the offense, um one, Porzingis needs to play center. He needs that space, but they they can't do that. Like he doesn't have space if nobody respects the shooters around him. Maxi coming back helps that. Um, although boy, Maxi missed a three last night by about six feet. It hurt. It hurt me. <laughs> it hurt the backboard so much that I actually re- recoiled from my laptop watching as if the ball had hit me. Yeah, it turns out missing 11 games with coronavirus does disrupt your shooting rhythm. He was shooting 47% from three before that, uh, before last night, but that, that one hurt. But that's their best defensive lineup. Ideally, you know, Maxie is a guy who can, can, you know, be a solid defensive big and space the floor, a versatile guy, can guard centers, powerful, whatever. Man, Colley Stein is hustling. You know, he's, he's playing hard. Uh, he's done some good things defensively. He's the worst finisher for an athletic seven footer that I have ever seen in my life. Like he's probably cost Luca 20 assists this year. It's, it's unbelievable. He also, he also doesn't box out, um, but that's, no, that's he, he doesn't and really their rebounding that. has been, although their defensive rebounding is okay. Their offensive rebounding is abysmally bad. And so look like they're, they're built. Like I'm mentioning, they don't have any pop. They're built to play slow, right? They're a half-court team. They don't turn the ball over. They don't really offensive rebound. They're just sort of a slow execution team. But their execution last year when they were rolling within the half-court was dynamic. Like you didn't know what was coming. The ball was popping. They were doing these improvisational giving. That's all gone, and it's just like – it's such a slog. And Josh Richardson's kind of a sloggy player. He's not a super dynamic player. They, they've got some sloggy guys, but it shouldn't be like this. It just doesn't look right. And I don't know. That's what the magic of basketball is. Is like, why does it look right when it looks right? And why does it not look right when it doesn't look right? And how do you get it back when it's gone? I don't know. But we'll right. know when it's back. We'll see it. Like the moment it's back, it'll be like, oh, there it is. It's back. Right. And, and look, Richardson's the guy, when they signed him, I thought, you know what, he'll have the best three-point shooting season in his career because he's going to get wide open, you know, test the wind type of threes because Luca creates those for guys. You know, he, he's gotten those kind of shots. He just hasn't made them so far. And, and I, you know, part of the thing with the Mavericks right now and, and, and Richardson, you know, I mentioned this with, with, uh, with Finney Smith, all especially these guys who missed time because of COVID, but I think Richardson more any of them because it's a new team, short training camp, so on and so forth. I'm I'm trying to kind of say, okay, w- w- what are real long term fit issues, and what is small sample size, give it a chance to kind of develop type of type of things. You know, how much patience should you have evaluating this team, and how much panic should you have? I'm I'm still 
Given the circumstances of this season, I am still going to be probably more toward the patient side of that continuum than a diehard Mavs fan is going to be. Um, The draft pick is worrisome. Uh, It's certainly not that they did not expect to be risking giving up a really good pick when when they made that KP trade. But one thing on Josh Richardson, by the way, not only is he not making threes, but I talked to him before the season about his fit in Dallas. And we had talked about how he got to the rim much less in Philly than he had in Miami. And he he just said, well, it was hard for me to get to the rim because we played 19 centers at the same time in Philly and there was no spam. He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) Yeah. and it was just hard with the spacing. Well, he's getting to the rim even less this season than he did in Philly. Like there's just, the, it gets to like the lack of pop. So let's fast forward with patience versus panic. Let's say we're six weeks from now and the Mavs are still 12th in the West. Uh, they're slated to have a whole bunch of cap room this coming summer. Obviously the guy they hope to use it for is now off the board. They owe those two picks to the Knicks. So they're not like overflowing with trade ammunition. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They have no future picks coming in. They have some intriguing guys on okay contracts, but you know, Seth Curry was one of those guys. Josh Richardson's on an expiring yeah. contract, not as intriguing, which is why the spotlight will always go back to Porzingis and what could they get if they package Porzingis and a lot of stuff. To me, this seems like a status quo season. Like we're just going to see what we have and move forward. I don't see big moves or panic moves on the horizon. But let's just say, Tim, if six weeks from now they are where they are now, what do, do you sense the same? Do you sense they'll sniff around? I mean, I don't know if they – I don't think they can really get into, like, Beal stuff right. without including Porzingis. And I'm not sure Washington would be super into Porzingis as a, as a, or anyone with that kind of trade ship. Right. Well, Porzingis right now, I, you know, it's it's three years left on on his max contract after this season. It's uh, the guys had all kinds of uh, leg issues and including surgeries on both knees. And, you know, again, for the, for his time in Dallas, there's about a 20 ish game uh, window there where he was really damn good. Yeah. But, in the bubble, he was unbelievable. He was in the bubble yeah. was like, OK, this is the team. This team has it figured out. They are going to be a contender for a long time. Yeah, and and really it was from when, and you know, unfortunate circumstance, but when Dwight Powell went down last year in in mid January, and Porzingis shifted to center full time, he he got it rolling. And some of that was just you know, I, in, in today's game, he needs to be playing center. Um, you know, some of that was uh, you know him. It being the point of the season where he'd gotten his legs under him, I think, you know, he had uh, started to figure things out even a little bit before that. But just him playing center really unlocked everything. Now, I think it's, it's interesting now, um, you know, he's teams don't necessarily feel obligated to put their centers on him. You know, for example, when they played the Jazz, Rudy Gobert did not guard Porzingis. They had Gobert guarding Finney Smith and really this, this just This is played. what the Clippers did in the playoffs too. Uh, yeah, a lot played, of times they put their yeah, they put their centers on Finney Smith. Yeah, and 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 you know Gobert was able to play goalie. That's why Finney Smith's three-point shooting is so important because he's an absolute critical defensive player for them. He's a great slasher. He's got crashes the ball. He does so many things well. He's a good even an average three-point shooter, it's a huge difference. If he's a bad lay off and three point shooter. It really screws the spacing up. And then, you know, like, so Gobert guarded Finney Smith, uh, Royce O'Neal, who I believe is six, five, maybe six, six guarded Porzingis. And they're basically saying, look, you want to try to punish 
us with Porzingis on the, on the block and have everybody else put their finger in their nose, please. And everybody knows Rick Carlisle <laughs> has declared to the world, I don't want to feed Porzingis a bunch of post-ups. I mean, you know, Rick, it was that thing last year where Chris Weber went on and on and on about Porzingis needs post-ups, Porzingis needs post-ups. And Rick basically just fired back after the game. And at the time, Porzingis was averaging, I think, like 0.54 points per post-up possession. He's, he's, there's times where you can get in a, in a little bit of a rhythm down there, but the Chris Tapps Porzingis heavy post-up diet is doomed for the Mavericks offense. And so, you know, it, it's, I, I guess that's a, it's a long-winded say, way of saying, I don't know if playing Porzingis at center right now is really as much of an advantage as it, as it was for the first couple months after they made that shift uh, last season. And then the other thing, look, there's times where Porzingis looks like he's on stilts. Like he, there's times he's looked really, really stiff. And, you know, he's coming off a knee surgery, but that's concerning. Well, KP at center is almost less about KP to me than it is about Luca and the driving lanes it opens up for everyone yeah. else. In, in fairness to KP, his post-ups this year in, in a limited sample have been pretty efficient. I'm looking at the numbers on yeah. second spectrum now, but it is just going to be an endless diet of turnaround fadeaway jumpers that just don't really scare teams all that much and don't draw um, – a lot of fouls. Yeah. It, you know, look, I, I do think that's still the roadmap is, is Porzingis at center. He's just got to play better. We'll see what happens with the Mavs. It, it is early. This is kind of a, a frustrating lost season for them, but um, we shall see Mr. McMahon. Thank you as always for making time. And uh, I'm tired of seeing that. I hope I see you before 2023, but I do hope I see you before 2023. Sounds good, man. Enjoy sledding. Oh, I'm a great sledder. Elite. I'll talk to you. <laughs> Take care. The Low Post fans, listen up. Have you heard you can listen to episodes of this very show ad-free on Amazon Music included with your Prime membership? That's right. All your favorite The Low Post episodes can be heard on Amazon Music ad-free. But that's not all. You can listen to other top podcasts like First Take and Pardon the Interruption ad-free as well. They also have favorite shows like The Daily, Part of My Take, and Up First, all without ads. You know what this means, uninterrupted listening, so no more cliffhangers. Amazon Music offers the most ad-free top podcasts, so we know they definitely have something for you. And it's already included in your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to Amazon.com slash low. That's Amazon.com slash low to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tune into The Jump. Weekdays at 3 Eastern on ESPN or check out The Jump's podcast, which features exclusive content and is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's bring on the one and only Kevin Pelton to look at some other confusing teams. Mr. Pelton, how are you out in Seattle, home of the WNBA defending champion Storm and Sue Bird returning for next season? 
I'm doing well. Uh, not Alicia Clark. That's uh, that's a little disappointing that she's not coming back to defend the championship. But uh, we're not dealing with any blizzards out here, so can't complain. Yeah, a lot of snow here. A lot of snow. Uh, all right. We just finished up with Tim McMahon on the reeling Dallas Mavericks. Mr. Pelton, do you have any hot takes on the Mavericks? Where are you on the patience versus panic continuum with the Dallas Mavericks, as Tim and I called it? I'm much more on the patient side. I mean, predictable, I feel... predictable. Come on. Well, look, you know, usually when I come on early in the season, people want to talk about all the teams that are playing well, and I have to do my regression to the mean, unsustainable, yada, yada, yada bit, and I'm the buzzkill. And now I get to be a little more, more optimistic because we're talking about teams that are struggling instead of overperforming early in the season. But I mean, it feels like there's just. A, there's not one big explanation necessarily for the Mavericks, except for the fact that they were playing without so many guys who contracted COVID. But there's a lot of little things that are going against them in terms of three-point shooting, that their performance in close games. Which, Again. Yeah, which is interesting because once upon a time, Dallas was like the outlier in this. They were the the exception that proved the rule. From 2004-05 through 2010-11, which is the championship year, they won 67% of their games decided by five points or fewer. Nobody else in the league won better than 60%. So it's bizarre that with the same coach that was there for the you know, the bulk of that run, or at least the tail end of it in Rick Carlisle, that now all of a sudden they can't win a close game. Well, I can think of one common denominator that was on the Mavericks from 2004 to 2011, and he might be the greatest clutch big man player in the history of basketball. And one of the reasons I say that Nikola Jokic, as much as we want to compare him to Sabonis and Walton, and that comparison is is completely, we all get why. He's an unbelievable passer. He's got a little bit of Dirk in him, too, in that he's the rare big man who has proven to be an elite late-game crunch time offensive option because, you know, most big men, that's they, they, it's hard for them late in games. It's not hard for Jokic, and it wasn't hard for Dirk. Yeah, I mean, those two guys are shooting a lot of self-created shots, which is, I think, the big difference. I mean, obviously, post-ups are self-created shots to a certain degree, but those become more difficult late in the game. And and yeah, uh, Dirk and Chris Paul, I think, are going to go down as the two greatest like late-game, not not the greatest, but relative to as great as they are all game, they, they go up a level more than even someone like, you know, Jordan. Damian Lillard just... <laughs> <laughs> become speaking of big shots it's just ridiculous like i know he takes all the big shots for portland but i like there wasn't a person watching that bulls blazers game not one person including every single member of the bulls who the minute he got the ball did not say oh it's going in everyone in the world oh it's except in portland where they were like yeah it's going in um, okay, I'm with you on the Mavs mostly. So the other confusing teams I wanted to talk about today are, and I will list them in order of record, the 12-8 and 8 Milwaukee Bucks. You know, record just like, you know, you kind of expect the Bucks with the number one offense in the league with a bullet to be a little better than 12-8. and 8. The 11-8 and 8 Phoenix Suns, about at expectations, but after they were 6-2, and two, people started, oh, look at the Suns, you know, Suns, Suns fever, and they're 5-6 and six since then. A little confusing. And when you watch them play, they're, I think, even more confusing than the numbers would suggest. And the 10-8 and 8 Boston Celtics, who have had a lot of COVID health and safety protocol stuff as well, and have been a little hard to figure out. Mr. Pelton, I will leave it to you. Pick one of those teams, Milwaukee, Phoenix, Boston. Who do you want to start with? 
Well, it feels like every time I come on the low post, we're obligated to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks for some reason. And they are, to, to me, by far the most interesting to those teams in terms of you know, what the fact that they've struggled says about less about them and more, I think, about the game itself and the way that it's continuing to evolve. So, you know, as you look at the Bucks, you mentioned their offense has been great. That's not the issue at all. It's that this defense that was really the bigger improvement when Bud came there two years ago was, you know, coming up with this scheme that was all about keeping Brooke Lopez as close to the rim as possible at all times, protect the paint, can't give up anything there. And we're going to give up a lot of threes because of that, but we're just fine with that. We're not going to be too concerned with it. And for a couple of years led by the Bucks, there was this interesting thing where teams that were giving up more threes were better defensively, which is counter how it had long been in the NBA. And then this season, with the Bucks as part of that again, and, and partially because of the fact that teams are hitting 39% of their threes against them, which is way up from the past two seasons when they were 35 to 36%, now all of a sudden teams that are giving up more threes are worse defensively again. Yeah, and um, the, the leaders of that sort of mini trend were, I think, Toronto, Milwaukee, Miami, and Boston, and all those teams are worse defensively this year for reasons ranging from health to roster turnover to luck to whatever. Um, so let's talk about the Bucks. Number one in offense by a lot. Okay, good. Number 15 in defense after being number one last year pretty easily. Um, and if you look at the fundamentals of their defense, starting with, uh, they're, they're exactly the same. I mean, if you look at how many shots are coming at the rim, how many threes are they allowing? How many mid-range jumpers are they allowing? Are they defensive rebounding? Yes. Do they foul anyone? No. It's like exactly the same. Eerily similar. Statistically identical. And yet they have fallen from 1st to 15th, primarily, as you said, because teams are shooting 40% from three, which is the highest figure in the league any team is giving up. So that just begs the question, is this luck? Is there anything to be concerned about? What are you seeing when you watch the team to answer that question? You know, I, I think this is a fascinating question, how much control teams have over what opponents shoot from three. It, it's something that uh, I guess has become the topic du jour in NBA nerd Twitter right now. Uh, you know, well, do that, the sounds like do a, that sounds like a terrible place. What a horrible place. <laughs> It's not so bad as long as you're into esoteric de de discussions of three-point defense. But I, I think at some level there may be some factor that we don't know about that explains why some teams seem to defend open threes or, or seemingly open threes better than others that maybe someday will unlock. But for now, there's not really anything I think that you can do to understand it better than to assume that everyone's going to come back to average. And, you know, if you look at the underlying shot distribution of their threes, the things that people usually point to, they're not giving up more shots from the corners. They're actually giving up way fewer shots from the corners relative tenth, to tenth past fewest, Tenth lowest share of corner threes in the league. So they're doing exactly But what Bud wants to allow is above the break threes from okay shooters. That's largely what appears to be happening. And there's not a higher percentage of them or that are wide open, no defender within six feet based on the second spectrum tracking in the past. That's down from last season. So it's just these shots that last year weren't going in 
this year are. And, you know, I think there was a couple of years ago, you know, we discussed this. This was another popular trend was this theory that the Bucks are like picking and choosing the right shooters to leave open. And, you know, we're going to close out hard to your Seth Curry's and leave, uh, you know, your Ben Simmons, I guess if you're playing the Sixers, wide open and make that guy shoot threes. And there didn't seem to be a lot of evidence for that. Our, our friend Seth Partnow of The Athletic, who notably worked for the Bucks when this when Bud got there, uh, was very skeptical publicly of this theory. And I do think it's kind of disproven this idea that, oh, the Bucks and teams like the Raptors as well can control opponent three-point percentage by leaving the right guys open. All right. Well, let's talk about what mechanically is actually happening on the floor. There was a lot of panic in Bucks Twitter. Really, a, it's a tough place, Bucks Twitter. After uh, the Bucks got waxed over the weekend, back-to-back games, the Pelicans and the Hornets put up 131 and 126 on last year's number one defense, just raining threes from everywhere. And it was most notable in the Charlotte game. It's happened in other games this season, but it was most notable in Charlotte game. The Bucks, who have been allergic to switching, phobia of switching, refusal to switch, began switching like willy-nilly. That's right. I said it. Willy-nilly against the Hornets. LaMelo Ball, Cody Zeller, pick and roll. We got to switch it. It's an emergency. We cannot leave Cody Zeller open for a pop three. Got to switch it. Against Portland the other last night, Monday night, they obliterated the Blazers. They switched a lot too. Sometimes they switched, sometimes they didn't. And you could tell, especially in the Charlotte game, switching is not something they've done a lot because they would switch a pick and roll and then... Charlotte would run something else, and they, the Bucks would get confused. So they'd run a pick-and-roll switch, fine. Okay, we have Brooke Lopez on the mellow ball, suboptimal, but we'll deal with it. And then there'd be a flare screen somewhere else, and two other Bucks would be like, wait, are we switching? Are we not? Oh, shoot, somebody's open. There's the three. And it's very interesting because this is the discussion we've had about the Bucks for three straight years now is when you get to the playoffs, do you have any variability in your defense or are we really just going to ride or die with Brooke Lopez is going to be hanging in the paint? We're not going to switch anything, even though we have really, really switchy personnel. So Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson, two more or less identical physical players with almost identical skill sets, run a split action off the ball. No, we're not switching. We refuse to switch, even though it's the easiest thing to do. Oh, no, Duncan Robinson's open again. Oh, no, we lost. And Giannis is you know, eligible for a supermax. It's a disaster, blah, blah, blah. Now they're trying to switch. And clearly this is what we've all been asking for is live with the growing pains in the regular season so that you've mastered it by the playoffs. So I don't think it's fair to watch them screw up switching in the regular season and panic about it when you've been asking Bud essentially to screw up the regular season in order to win the long game of the playoffs. However, I do think it is it is interesting that like LaMelo Ball, Cody Zeller, just don't switch it. Like it's not, it's not really dangerous. Like it's not like then Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons run a side pick and roll last night and they don't switch it. Even though it's a guard guard action, Anthony Simons flares to the corner for a wide open three. It will be interesting seeing the rhyme or reason with which they do this, but it's very clear that the edict has come down from somewhere. We're trying it. And the initial foray into switching has been scattershot as we would expect it to be. But I guess if we've been asking for this, 
we should applaud them for doing it. I'm just more interested in seeing them switch things that actually need to be switched than a LaMelo ball, Cody Zeller pick and roll. But maybe the way you get good at switching the stuff that needs to be switched is to just try to switch everything and just practice it, I guess. I don't know. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, you'd rather have us, as you said, in there in February against Charlotte than in whatever month the playoffs happened last year against Miami. I, I, My thought on the Bucks has always been more that it need, needs to be a switching unit because it's always going to be a struggle when you're switching with Brooke Lopez on the guards, and he is awesome around the rim. You do want to keep him there. That's been great for them. But you know who has not been awesome protecting the rim? Bobby Portis. He's been extremely poor. Uh, the The Bucks' rim protection numbers are way down, even though the attempts are similar to last year. And it's basically all when Lopez is off the court. They allow 56% shooting at the rim with Lopez, according to Cleaning the Glass. Without him, that jumps to 68%. And those are almost all Portis minutes. So he's the guy I'd like to see switching, not Brooke Lopez. Um, interestingly, last night, in, in something that, I thought, like, check the makes sense column. Uh, when they had Portis in the game, they experimented with, they put Tory Craig on Ennis Cantor, and they hid Portis over on Carmelo Anthony, and they switched all the Lillard Cantor pick and rolls, even though putting Tory Craig on Ennis Cantor, you would think, well, that's death by post up an offensive rebound. They were like, let's try it. Let's switch. We don't want Dame popping into, you know, 20, walking into 25 footers, and it kind of worked like that. It's been, it's interesting. The Bucks are sort of, navigating this now and you know a, another interesting thing is you mentioned the switch lineup Giannis has played 28 minutes the entire season without Lopez or Portis on the floor I guess I, I put a couple other bigs into that so it might be a little bit more but regardless he's played almost no center and I think a lot of us thought the natural playoff end game for the Bucks when they need the switch everything versatility is Giannis at center Obviously, that's Middleton, Holiday, Giannis, XX. Just fill it out how you want, who's hot, who's not, whatever. It is curious, I think, that we just haven't seen very much of that. You would think if this is playing the long game for the playoffs, part of that would be, well, let's try this a little bit more. Yeah, and maybe that's one where they are concerned about the wear and tear on Giannis and feel like that that one is better saved for the playoffs. It's also a lot easier, you know, when you had better X options. I mean, Dante DiVincenzo presumably is one of those guys, and then Connaughton, I, you know, I guess. You know, there's been a lot of clamor for Tory Craig. Tory Craig is Milwaukee's savior, I think, has been a, has been a I, yeah. But you're right. I mean, it's it's there's not a ton of options. Uh, Thanasis Atentacumpo was in the rotation for a while. He's out of it now. Then you have the little guy guards, Bryn Forbes and DJ Augustine. And Bud, as I think wisely concluded, we can only play one of those guys on the floor and not two. Um, so it, it is it is interesting. But defensively, you know, this is, this is, I think we came into the season thinking, I want to see how the Bucks remake their half-court offense in preparation for the playoffs. And the more interesting storyline so far has been, oh, wait a second, the defense is a little bit of a mess by the numbers? How are they remaking their defense? This is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm now, I'm more into watching the Bucks' defense for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, last year, you knew exactly what you were going to get from the Bucks on a given night during the, uh, during the regular season. And this year, there is a, at least a little bit more intrigue in watching them. Um, let's talk about their offense for... A second, because they are leading the league by a lot. Uh, I've talked about it on, on other episodes before, so I don't want to belabor it. But when I had Arnovitz on a few weeks ago, it was right after the Nets game 
on January 18th, with which the Bucks lost. In that game, Giannis set 36 ball screens. He was the screener in pick and roll 36 times. I noted at that time, it was the highest total of the last three years for him by like 14, by a mile. And I said to Kevin, there's a chance we look back at this game as a turning point in Bucks mini history, I guess, because, you know, I've said it before. I, th- I think for Giannis to win a title and for the Bucks to win a title, he has to be a little more Anthony Davis and a little less LeBron James. Not all the way, but tap into his inner offensive big man a little bit as a screener. And that game was like, whoa, there's a lot of Drew Holiday, Giannis pick and rolling. A lot of Chris Middleton, Giannis pick and roll, especially crunch time. I wonder if that's going to be a thing. So here's the numbers from Second Spectrum. In the last three seasons, there have been nine games total, nine, in which Giannis has set 20 or more ball screens. Four of those games have been since January 18th, including the Nets game. One, two, three, four. So three more after that. Clearly, I think we can conclude safely that this is going to be a trend, that the Bucks are easing Giannis into this kind of role more than he has been in the past. He's still going to have a million ISOs at the top of the arc. He's still going to get to do all his stuff. He's still going to post up. He's going to rampage and transition and Euro step. He Euro stepped Ennis Canner last night. He gyro, excuse me, he gyro stepped Ennis Canner last night where it honestly looked like Ennis Kanter was caught in quicksand. I don't even think he moved. It was it was like as if a statue of Ennis Kanter had been placed in the restricted area. And as a challenge, can you just avoid this statue completely? And Giannis completed the challenge. But I think this is really, really interesting. It's something that I haven't seen get a lot of play in the press. But I'm watching it very carefully because I think it's smart. And I do wonder if there's a little push and pull going on behind the scenes. I have no idea. I'm just speculating of, hey, we know you fashion yourself one kind of player. Can we try to just make you 10% more like another kind of player? Sure, let's go. I I just think it's really interesting. Yeah, and it it also maybe serves as a response to the fact that those Giannis isolation plays haven't been as effective this year with somebody in the dunker spot. So, you know... and the criticism is, well, you're inviting help by putting someone there. And the point is, come playoff time, that help is already always there. That help is going to be there. And that was the issue for the Bucks in past years. So if uh, same thing. If you've got to figure out how to deal with it, better to do that in February than do it in June, July, whenever we're going to hold playoffs this year. Last thing on the Bucks defense, when they have Giannis, Holiday, and Middleton all on the floor, their three best players, they're allowing only 104 points per 100 possessions, which is like more or less number one-ish in the league. And six points stingier than their overall defense. In, in 415 minutes with those guys on the floor, they're plus 102. So with their best, and sometimes you just have to look at that. Like there's a lot of noise in the regular season. With your best guys on the floor, the guys who are going to play a whole lot of minutes together in the playoffs, their defense is fine. And with other guys on the floor, not as fine. Um Let's move on to another. Oh, the, one other little Bucks thing. Sneakily, they're offensive rebounding this season. I think they're like six in offensive rebounding. Bud teams are typically like bottom three. Maybe that's just the dunk. Them, they're filling the dunker spot, so there's somebody down there. But Bobby Portis is getting a lot of offensive rebounds. And a little side bonus of the way they're spacing the floor this season. 
Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Let's move on to another team. Do you want to talk about Phoenix or Boston? Let's talk about Boston. The 10-8 and 8 Boston Celtics are 10th in offense and 10th in defense. Ooh, that's good. I love when the, a team is 10th in offense and 10th in defense, and their announcers will be like, well, you know you have to be in the top 10 in both categories to win the championship, so we're number 10 and number 10. Therefore, ex post facto, blah, 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 we are a championship. No, sorry. You have to be like a little better than 10th in at least one of the categories. I don't know what to make of this team. They look amazing some nights. They look eh some nights. They played the Lakers real tough recently, and they lost. Kemba has barely been back. I think he's played, what, eight games or something like that. Uh, Smart is hurt now. Tatum missed a bunch of games. When those four guys are healthy, they should be really, really good. Um, I just, I, I don't know. what what Is, is there anything to uh, their start? The starting five from the bubble last year, the, the, without Hayward since he was hurt, so the four guys I just mentioned and Tice has played 21 minutes the whole season. I don't, I don't know what to make of this team. What do you make of them? I, I think they're ahead of where I expected them to be at this point, given the fact that Kemba was going to be out to start the season and their depth was going to be so compromised with Romeo Langford also out. And we had so many questions about their bench, which, you know, Peyton Pritchard has been a pleasant surprise before his injury. So I, I mean, I still think there's some work for, to be done for the Celtics before the trade deadline to try to figure out how to upgrade this bench. But all things considered, I, I I think they're in a good spot to still be in position to have home court advantage right now, despite all those things. And then, you know, playing five games without Jason Tatum. Yeah. And, you know, the big question to me, I, I, I thought their defense would hold steady. They're, they just have good defensive fundamentals there. And their defense is 10th now. Um their question to me was, is this team without Kemba going to be able to score? And particularly when one of the Jays was on the bench. And it was rough for a while when one of those guys would sit. Um, sometimes it still is rough, but they've held pretty steady. And both of those guys, Jalen and Jason, have been just blow the doors off outstanding. 
And their offense to be 10th with Kemba not playing much and struggling in some of the games he did play, I think is a huge win. A sign that those two guys are absolute legit NBA stars, probably perennial all-stars at the position of most urgent need across the league. And if that's the case, you know, I think the Celtics should continue to behave as like our window to win is now. Our window to contend is now. As long as those guys are entering and in their primes, we should act with urgency. We've had all these extra picks in the past. Most of them have been used up, but we can still make some things happen. Um, But we should act with urgency. Even at 10 and 8, I think they have to be encouraged. And, you know, look, Brooklyn... Everyone wants to judge the Nets. How many? I think Harden, Kyrie, and KD have played like 120 minutes together. It's early. They can't defend anybody. It's going to be a while. Milwaukee, we just talked about. I mean, it's not like the East is sort of, other than Philly, who you know has been really impressive, is like run away from Boston. I think they should look at this as. I agree with you. It's kind of encouraging. It is a little weird. Um, it just I just can't really get a feel for them. I would say if I have one concern. Like watching Kemba, he looks like Kemba, but his free throw attempt rate is down. And that's a bit of a concern to me that, you know, is he still have the same level of explosiveness, ability to get to the basket, those sort of things. That's that's fair. And they are they're getting to the rim a little bit less and taking more mid rangers and fewer threes, but nothing nothing that's sort of alarming to me. Um and you know, Jalen and Jason have been just really, really good, man. I mean, really good and the Celtics take a lot of guff, guff for not making trades, and they're always at the goal line of trades. And, you know, they did make a pretty big trade for Kyrie Irving, and I think they're going to be aggressive um, at the upcoming trade deadline. I will say, so So now that we've seen, now that we've had a couple of months to digest this, I think it was pretty well documented, including here, that if the Celtics had wanted Miles Turner on their team, they could have had Miles Turner on their team. How does that decision they obviously they still have the big trade exception and we'll see if they're able to use it from from Hayward going to Charlotte how how does this decision look now with the benefit of some time I mean Miles Turner has been awesome this year he's maybe the defensive player of the year so far so he does look like a guy you'd want on your team especially you know it does feel like Danny Ainge is probably more concerned about their lack of size as reflected by the Tristan Thompson signing and you know some of their other moves in the past than than I would be I, I would probably be more okay with, you know, just having Daniel Tice, even if it means that sometimes he might struggle against a matchup like Bam Adebayo in last year's conference finals. So from that standpoint, you know, it, it's not aged great, but you've still got the optionality of we have no idea what this trade exception might become, and it might be something that, you know, better fits with the Celtics core down the line. I mean, my my bigger criticism was always why the Pelicans didn't try to jump into that and get Miles Turner because he seemed to me like the perfect fit next to Zion. And, and I don't think anything that's happened in the last month has, uh, or two months has changed my mind on that. Yeah, he's averaging like four blocks a game. And it's not, he's not chasing blocks. He's not leaping himself out of position, not getting rebounds, not boxing out to, to chase block, shot blocks. He's been really good. Boston also 25th in free throw rate. That's a little problematic. A lot of turnovers, much more than usual for a Kemba team. Again, this hasn't really been a Kemba team this year, so that should normalize. But Smart's going to be out a couple weeks. This is another team where I'm like, we just got to see how it looks. Who on there? We've already seen more from Peyton Pritchard than I think they expected. Ojale's given them some nice minutes, and it's kind of jumped Grant Williams in the rotation. So they're figuring some things out. Overall, though, Tatum and Brown have been so good that I think that just solves uh, a ton of problems. Jalen Brown, my God. 
27 a game. I, I can't say even as a Jalen Brown optimist that I saw that coming. I mean, it's it's been incredible. And one of the things that frustrates me sometimes, and we saw this with Tatum the last few years, is people like assume that development for players is going to be linear. Like, okay, you're going to get 4% better this year and then 4% better the next or whatever it is, you know, because that's the average of all players. But when you look at one individual player, it never goes like that. Like it's two steps forward and then maybe it's one step back. And, and that sort of thing. And, and Jalen has taken t- probably three or four steps forward this year. His playmaking, I think his assist rate is about 20%, uh, which is easily a career high for him. He's just really, really good. I mean, his footwork, his jump shot, he's a really good player. And to have those two guys locked up for this long, you know, for, well, for at least the next three or four years. And again, you don't ever know what a guy's going to do when that second contract is up. You never know. Everything looks copacetic now, but you never know. And that's why I think they have to look at it as we got to try to win now. Like our window is open now. Let's try to win. Um, Let's talk about the Suns for a bit because the Suns are always interesting. Diehard fan base off to a great start. A lot of Chris Paul hype. Uh, They are 11-8 and coming off the sweep in Dallas. 17th in offense. Not great. Fifth in defense. Very, very good. Both their starting lineups, one with Jay Crowder and their current one with Cam Johnson, are negatives in plus-minus. Um, the craziest stat of the year so far to me, or one of them, is when Booker plays without Paul, plus 63 in 170 minutes. When Paul plays without Booker, plus 55 in 220 minutes. When the franchise guards play together, minus 32 in 361 minutes. Um, that might be something. Might be nothing, might be everything using the jump format that we use sometimes. I don't know. Um, I think it is reflective of when you watch this team, they just don't have a lot of flow to them. There's not a lot of chemistry on offense. It's not flowing as easily as you would think it would flow. Aiton's role seems to oscillate wildly every game. Sometimes he's a forgotten man. Sometimes they'll have a random 25-point game. Like, oh, there's DeAndre Aiton. He's at the foul line again. Wow, that's great. Probably should get to the foul line more than twice a game. Um, it's just a strange brew on offense that they just haven't quite like it, it on paper. It looks good. Bunch of shooters around DeAndre Ayton, two great ball handlers. Let's go. It hasn't worked that great in practice, but you have to be thrilled with the defense. What are you seeing offensively for Phoenix? What's their outlook? What are you encouraged, discouraged? Where are you? I would say overall, they're about where I expected them to be. But like you said, the way that they've gotten there has been unusual. And the interesting question is how much of that is about the chemistry between Paul and Booker and how much is about is that about the other guys who are on the court? Because that also overlaps with they've generally struggled with Aiton this season or, you know, been okay with Aiton. And they've just destroyed with Dario Saric in the minutes that he's played at center, which have come with typically one of those two guards with the other one resting. Yep, so, they are they are um, minus two per 100 possessions with Aiton on the floor, plus 13 with Aiton off the floor, and plus 19 with Dario playing center. Um, Dario's been hurt for a while. But yeah, those, those lineups have absolutely killed it. Saric has been great for them. Yeah, and I think that maybe his best role is in is at center, even though you're giving up a great deal in terms of rim protection. It's just such a difficult group for opponents to match up with. I mean, the one guy we haven't mentioned yet that I, I think we both have great fondness for is Mikael Bridges. Oh. And oh. his, 
Like the fact that he's starting to do things off the bounce this early in his career is really exciting to me. If he hears this somehow, if his ears are burning, he might reach all the way from Phoenix and pat you on the back in Seattle with one of his arms. His arms are so long. And yeah, off the dribble, he's aggressive. He's getting to the rim. He's shooting 42 or 43% from three. Mikhail Bridges is, if you made in a lab, give me a complimentary 3 and D player. The lab would just be, can I just clone Mikhail Bridges? The Not the bad news, but the news for the Suns is those players, when they hit free agency or get eligible for extensions, tend to make more money than a 3 and D role player, quote unquote, should make. Mikhail Bridges is about to get paid. He deserves it. He's been fantastic for them. The other guys, Cam Johnson shooting 37% from three. Think you hope for more. Crowder is down to like 32. I think, you know, you'd hope for a little better than that and they're playing around with like the who's the extra guard off the bench is it Langston Galloway is it Etuan Moore is it Javon Carter oh my god there's Abdel Nader I forgot about him oh now he's gone again those minutes are a little dicey I'd like if they could have one more perimeter guy and I've always had a soft spot for Etuan Moore I kind of want it to be Etuan Moore just because I like him um but yeah the Paul Booker thing it's very your turn my turn it's it's like you see glimpses you see glimpses of like Paul Ayton run a pick and roll and Ayton scrambles down and sets a pin down for Booker who then catches and moves in. You see glimpses of that, but it's really like, it's it's a little sludgy more so than I thought. Well, maybe the best glimpse of that would probably be the game winning shot on Monday night, right? That's an action on one side with Paul and then Booker's coming off and coming free for the, the game winning three. I mean, that's, that's what you would dream for from this group. And, and, you know, the fact that they're still muddling along in, you know, in a playoff spot, non-play-in spot in the West without those guys clicking, I think is probably ultimately the the best news for the Suns. And they play super slow, a.k.a. Chris Paul's on the team. Um, they are 29th in free throw rate and 29th in the percentage of their shots that come at the rim. Some of that is, again, they have two great mid-range shooters who are going to take a lot of mid-range. Devin Booker sometimes take these mid-range shots. You could do one of those things that the internet does where they like put side-by-side a Kobe shot and an MJ shot, and they're the same. You could do that for Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Like snake around a pick-and-roll left to right, arrive at the right elbow, mid-range leaning jumper. You, it's They're very similar. Chris Paul last night, what he did to Porzingis on that one step back— that was like a war crime. I, it was I, that violated the Geneva Conventions. I mean, that was just so grotesquely awful, bad behavior to do to Chris. Did you see it? Like Chris, I, it, it was really bad. I did feel bad for for KP on that one. My fellow KP, your fellow KP. Um, but some of that chemistry will come will come with time. And um, but they do need to sort of get to the rim a little bit more. And like that's boy, Aiton is one of these guys. I just can't figure him out. I can't figure out what he's going to... And it makes me endlessly intrigued and want to watch every Suns game because I just don't know what he's going to be. He wants to shoot all these fadeaways from the post, and yet sometimes he'll seal somebody early and put them in the basket and draw a foul and be like, I want want that guy. Defensively, you and I have talked about a lot. He made huge strides last year. I feel like this year... He hasn't been as good, and we saw several instances last year, last night against Dallas where he would drop to contain a pick and roll, and then he would leave as if his job was done, 
and his job wasn't done and the ball handler would be like, oh, he left. Also, I'm going to go shoot a layup because no one's in my way anymore. That was the kind of stuff he was doing on the regular in his rookie season that I thought he had ironed out of his game. So I'm back to sort of like, I just don't know what he, I mean, he's going to be a good player. Clearly his talent is prodigious. I just don't know now on either end quite what I'm going to get from him every night. He's a fascinating player. Yeah, I was looking at his numbers yesterday. It's it's interesting how much more similar in a lot of ways they are to his rookie season than they are to year two. Like he's kind of, whether it's the fact that they have a second ball handler or shot creator and now that they aren't asking him to do as much of that or what, he has kind of, I don't want to say reverted because he was still a good player, but like you said, that, that development we saw in year two hasn't necessarily carried over. I think one of the reasons they feel your turn, my turny to me is... In some alignments, not all of them, but in the Phoenix one, one of the penalties you pay for playing small, so for playing, like Cam Johnson's a wing playing power forward. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. It's fine. Like, that's the way of the NBA. But they only have one screen setter on the team. Aiton is the only screen setter on the team. So what you would envision in your head is Paul pick and roll on one side, bend the defense, whip to the side of the other side of the floor. There's another pick and roll ready. Well, no, there isn't because... Devin Booker has to wait for DeAndre Ayton to meander over there because Cam Johnson's not a screen setter. You know, Jay Crowder's not a screen setter. Mikhail Bridges is... They can be, but the defense doesn't really care. They're probably just going to switch those plays. It's, so it's, I think that's one of the reasons why they look a little stuck in mud is kind of built into their team. But, you know, there's you have to figure their starting groups will, will click a little bit. And, and there's nothing... The last big Suns question I'll put to you is... Is there anything that sticks out about their defense to you that is like, well, this is a fluke or this is unsustainable? When I watch them, to answer my own question, I'm just like, they're a pretty damn solid defensive team. Like, I don't, I don't think there's much fluky going on. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, you look at three point shooting; it's a little below average, so maybe maybe that'll come up a little bit, but not, you know, maybe that pushes them outside of the top ten, but I don't think it pushes them below average. Yeah, they don't. They, I think they've they've allowed the second fewest threes in the league, so they've clearly prioritized that. They're number two in defensive rebounding. Like they're just sort of taking care of the fundamentals that they can take care of. And whatever Monty Williams is telling them to do, they're more or less doing it. Nothing about I think they're just a good, solid defensive team. And now that Booker is back, he just missed a handful of games uh, for some, I think a hamstring or some, some kind of leg injury. Um, maybe they can get rolling again. But they're they're a lot it, more than usual this year, which is not surprising given the circumstances. Doesn't it feel like there are just a lot of teams where it's just, I don't know what I'm getting on a particular... And you look at the records, they're all bunched up. There's a million teams that are within two games of 500 in either conference or right around there. Teams have risen and fallen and risen and fallen. Like, I just don't... Like, what am I getting out of the Hawks every night? I have no idea. I have no idea who's even going to play for the Hawks every night. What am I getting out of... The Grizzlies have won seven games in a row, spread over two months, it seems like. I, I just don't know what's... It, just a strange, strange season, as one would... Even the King... The Kings are hot, Kevin. That's, well, it. Yeah, That's all I, I have mean, to they, say. The Kings are hot. I, I have no other commentary. Well, teams were making like 45% of their threes against the Kings the, the first month of the season, and it turned out not even against Sacramento's defense is that level of play sustainable. But yeah, I feel like everyone in the league is two good games away from feeling like, hey, we're in great shape, and two bad games away from being in crisis. Oh, can I, can I say one thing about the Kings? I'm going to nominate someone for most underappreciated NBA player. Do you know who I'm going to nominate? Rashawn Holmes? No, but he would be a good candidate. His, Harrison Barnes? His, yes, Harrison Barnes is the answer. Rashawn Holmes' push shot is now appreciated. 
It's not a hidden gem anymore. Everybody knows about his push shot. Every game, you're like, oh, Rashawn Holmes, oh, that, that's his shot. He shoots 90%. He doesn't actually shoot 90%. Harrison Barnes, people just love to drag Harrison Barnes. The contract, he's overpaid. He was the fifth wheel in Golden State. He has no feel for the game. He's a mechanical boy. Wouldn't you love to get off Harrison Barnes' contract? The guy is a good NBA player. I, did, I looked at his numbers today. I don't have him in front of me. He's averaging like 18 a game or something on 50% shooting overall, 40% from three, three and a half assists a game. Doesn't sound like much, but it's a career high for him by far, so he's advanced a little bit as a playmaker. You need to post up a little guy? He can do it. You need to run an emergency pick and roll late in the shot clock? He can do it. You need him to guard one through five? You know, some matchups are not going to be great for him, but he can definitely guard two to four. It, like, he's just... For all the for all the guff he has taken and the hate over the contract and stylistically he's not the most pleasing guy to watch. There are a lot of NBA teams that would be better if Harrison Barnes were on their team. Yeah, he's a nice complimentary piece. Who's still waiting for the Kings to develop enough of the uh, the really good players to push him into that complimentary role he belongs in. They're on off numbers with him, and obviously there's a ton of noise, but they're plus like. I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but the gap is big. They're minus a lot with Harrison Barnes off the floor and plus something, which for the Kings, if you're plus any, or maybe they're just slightly minus. It might be they're slightly minus. The Kings are never really plus a lot in anything, but but I just that's my ode to Harrison Barnes. All right, Mr. Pelton. Suns, Wait. Celtics, but what, go, you have another point to make? I have a Kings player to talk about, which is Nemanja Bialica, who's been hasn't he's played. Not a Kings in player anymore. Here. Basically, he sits in a hoodie on the bench. He looks quite. He crosses his legs like he's at a cafe in Europe. He looks quite comfortable. Someone come rescue Nemanja Bialica. This is a good NBA player. He could help a contender. Let's let's oh, get him on a contender. Someone team. is going to re- that is for sure going to happen. And um, you know, similar to what we've seen with JJ Redick being out of the rotation in New Orleans, that's clearly yeah. a we're just gonna probably put you on ice until we trade you kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. The Bayleets is good. You know, I predicted before last season that he would be traded because when you think of the sort of just glut of power forwards they have between Bagley and Barnes and Bayleets, so it was, it was very going to be very clear no matter how you juggled the rotation, someone was going to lose minutes. And now they've essentially abandoned Bagley at center. They, he never plays center anymore. They've just decided we can't defend with him at center. So there really is just no room for him. But he, I agree with you. He's good. He shoots the hell out of it. He's got a nice feel for the game. He's a little bit feisty defensively, and someone will rescue him. Yeah, just make it sooner rather than later. He's being wasted right now. Um, all right, Mr. Pelton, thank you for helping me navigate this confusing NBA season. As always, uh, enjoy Seattle, and uh, we, will, we will catch up again soon, I'm sure. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Our Difference Maker of the Week is brought to you by our friends at CarMax. Don't just buy a car, love your car with the new CarMax Love Your Car Guarantee. This week's Difference Maker is every single player on the Houston Rockets who have won six games in a row and have the number one defense in the NBA since they traded James Harden. Let me repeat that. The Houston Rockets, a mad libs of NBA spare parts all put together, is now number one in defense since they traded James Harden. John Wall, one of my favorite players to watch in the NBA in the last 10 years. John Wall is almost all the way back. He's showing you flashes of vintage John Wall every single game, screaming rushes up and down the court. Victor Oladipo is finding his way. David Nwaba is wrecking stuff all over the floor. Boogie Cousins gives you some Boogie Cousins moments almost every game. Deshaun Tate, 
get to know Deshaun Tate. He's a good player. The Rockets have a lot of – Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon is shooting 60% from Tuesday. Puts his head down like a bull in the china shop and just gets to the rim. The Rockets are a fun team. They're playing hard. They clearly have a chip on their shoulder trying to prove to James Harden, hey, you left an okay team behind, just FYI. Again, our thanks to Carmack for the Difference Maker of the Week. For more Difference Makers, check out my weekly 10 Things column on the ESPN Insider page.